Well, hello, Mike. Hey. How's it going? I'm sick. Oh. It's getting better, though, I think. Sick of... Uh, I wanted to tie it into the election somehow, but I couldn't make the jump. It's okay. The elections are over. They're over. Now it's all about forward. Speaking of forward, you know what else is moving forward is the video industry. Okay. Wake me up when you're done. That, that was as far as I, I didn't oh, plan okay. out any more than that. That was good. That was my little um, transition. That's a segue. Segue. Yeah. For the year. So, there's a lot of stuff, a lot of cameras. Everything's going 4K, 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 4K. That's 12Ks. Um, Sony kind of uh, shook things up over the last couple of weeks with a couple of new cameras and some announcements about their old cameras. And Red's been making some waves as well. Um, it certainly seems like 4K is is very quickly becoming the standard. The new 2K. Yeah. Uh, quicker than I expected, really. I mean, you know, obviously there have been cameras out there for years now, but uh, it seems like the push down into the mid, mid-market mid or, I mean, I don't really know how we segment prices anymore. It's kind of confusing, but the, the push down into the sort of teens um, for usable camera rigs has happened teen, quickly. Teen thousands, not teen cameras. Right. Not the tween market. No. Okay. No, they're still shooting in uh, 1080. At arm's length, back at themselves from high angles. Um, nope. So, uh, Sony released the F5 and F55, which are both 4K cameras in the same family as um, the F3. Yeah, um, rest, yeah. So, sort of, yeah, you know, their their product lines are never completely clear, but um, in this sort of chubby body, but prosumery shaped camera range in their their cine alta line well yeah but i mean cine alta has become such a sort of vague brand name these days yeah i mean it's cameras that are not meant to be video so they're not studio heads and they're not um like you're just not going to switcher and you're not posting it it's video right. that has to get post-processed. Right, right. Um, so the the differentiators between these cameras get pretty uh, minute in a lot of ways. Um, you know, some of it is down to overcranking rates and whatnot. One of the big differences between um, so the F five is the lower end model, the F fifty five is the higher end model. Um, one of the big differences is that the F fifty five has a global shutter. Um, so it can work around CMOS rolling shutter issues, um, which is pretty cool to see. There aren't too many cameras out there that have tried doing that. Um, I know, let's see, the Dulce Origin did, um, and right. maybe a handful of others, but um, it's pretty cool to see that coming to a, a much lower-end camera. So they haven't announced pricing for any of these, right? Um, I don't think they officially have. You know, there have been a bunch of... Maybe price leaks, um, but no, I don't think there's been an official announcement of pricing at this point. Right. I mean, everyone just sort of knows what Sony's hoping to compete against from Canon, and that's what they're using for yeah, I mean, rough they, price estimates. You know, expect the F5 in the mid to high teens and the F55 some chunk above that. But 
still under 20, right? I, I you know, it, I wouldn't be surprised if the F-55 crosses over 20, but we'll see. Right. Um, it is cool. One of the things I was excited to see is it's got the quad HDSDI output for monitoring. Yes. Um, which is a, a pretty cool deal. Um, monitoring 4K has been an issue on all these different cameras in, in a lot of ways. Um, there haven't been great ways to monitor the full resolution signal. Um, it's a shame that that's kind of the best. It seems like it's worth at least exploring a new connector and cable at yeah. this point. Yeah. Like, I get that we're never going to get it down to a single wire for lots of reasons, unless we go fiber. Or start, Quartz. you know, standardize raw and start pushing raw around. Ooh. I mean, you know, Bayard raw. Ooh. Well, I mean... Wait. Bayard raw. Bayard raw. That doesn't actually help you then. Once you debayer it, then that's actually more data. That's what I'm saying. Bayard, not debayered. Oh, I thought. You, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Raw raw. But that just moves. That just means you got to do debayering everywhere. Yeah. I'm just saying in terms of ways to deal with the bandwidth issue. I mean, the, the issue for folks who are, aren't following this conversation is that um, doing 4K data rates is just pushing the upper boundaries of what's even feasible over copper, um, especially over right. the so, of yeah. so in video. HD over HDSDI is 3 gigahertz. Is, I mean, effectively nowadays. Right. I mean, and so you figure you've got four times as many pixels. So, you know, without doing anything novel, you've got four times as much data. And the problem is... Three to four gig is about the theoretical limit of, you know, a, a real-world cable, like the sort of cable that you could actually use in a production. Well, I mean, think about the other the other sort of interconnects we know about um, that are sort of at the higher end there. You've got 10-gig um, Ethernet which is really expensive and generally happens over fiber. You've got Thunderbolt, which is uh, 10 or, or 20 gig, uh, but requires, you know, fancy chips and has very limited cable lengths. And has multiple, I mean, it's a parallel connector, isn't it? Well, you've got two 10 gig channels. So, um, and, and so, you know, think about if you've ever been on a set or in a studio, think about the way that BNC cables get slung around, the lengths of cables and all of that. You know, the, the the environment that they have to operate in is very, very different from the environment of a Thunderbolt cable going from your MacBook Pro to your Drobo. Um, right. And the problem is when you start talking about real-world wiring, you go to someplace like 30 Rock in, you know, like NBC's studios in New York, and they've got, I would guess, thousands, not hundreds of miles of... yeah. Cables easily. Um, I mean, don't, is it, they, they at Thirty Rocket? They've shut down the entire central elevo- elevator. Yeah, their entire elevator. elevator shaft is cables. Yeah, the central elevator shaft is just dangling RJ or like yeah BNCs basically. Yeah. So, you know. One of the reasons that we went from SDSD, well, that we went from component to SDSDI to HDSDI was to maintain uh, cabling and connector layouts, um, and it served pretty well. But we're now 
running into physics and um, there's not a great as far as i know there's really nothing on the horizon for 4k i don't know i mean i guess there's not hdmi they could go to glass that's about it yeah but for long runs yeah i don't see a way to do it without going to fiber yeah which isn't, I mean, you know, obviously with things like triax and whatnot, you know, fiber can be made robust for production environments, but it is non-trivially complex and expensive and, you know, far more difficult to deal with than just grabbing, pulling out your, your BNC crimper and uh, making a cable click. Yeah. Although making your own cables isn't that, has gotten harder with higher data rates too. Hmm. I mean, it's still manageable though. Yeah. Whereas, and and I know yes, you can you know put your own, do your own optical, but that yeah. Yeah, we did that at Oxygen. Not me, but I watched people do it. Yeah. It, it didn't look fun. No. Putting connectors. On. I mean, it wasn't bad. It wasn't that much worse than BNC. You just had the little thing you had to like polish the end and then glue and then then hold it and do the little heat thing. It wasn't, I mean, it wasn't the end of the world. It's not like, you know, when AT&T rolls up into a neighborhood with their like air conditioned trailer to do their crimson. Yeah. Like consumer stuff. It's like a little, you know, it's a rinky dink little setup and stick on a desk. Um, one other interesting thing about these cameras, they, they don't come out of the box with a viewfinder option, but you get your choice of viewfinders, which I think is kind of neat. Um, so you can do eyepiece or more traditional screens on up through a 7-inch 1080p screen that attaches directly to the body as well, um, which is kind of neat, you know, to have a, in, in many ways, going more with the red model of ship a brain and then add chunks onto it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it seems like, it's been red got a lot of stuff right it looks like yeah so from a workflow perspective i guess that's the other interesting side of this is that they are actually recording um 4k in a optionally in a in a deburied deburied format that they're calling xavc which is an h264 um 4k stream um which is pretty cool yeah, it sounds like it's not very good for playback. Yeah, it's it's um, basically the upper extremes of what H.264 can do. So uh, f- profile 5.2, I think. Oh, boy. Uh, um, and, yeah, it's going to take some serious horsepower to play this stuff back. I would assume that most workflows will involve transcoding into a mezzanine format. But it's it's really cool to be able to be at least acquiring directly to that format because you'll be able to then throw it into existing uh, production pipelines without having to deal with yet another raw format right out of the gate. Obviously, um, raw is an option as well, but, um, you know, it's it, especially to be able to record everything internally, since I think the C500 from Canon isn't going to do internal 4K recording, or at least it's only going to do raw internal 4K. Hmm. Um, yeah, fairly sure of that. <laughs> Yeah, this will be. They look like they're gonna be nice. Yeah, um, will be fun to see them, and they're shipping in February, so we won't have to wait too long to 
to get a sense of how they're going to compete in the marketplace. Um, one way they will be competing, or that they're already competing, I would, I would, uh, what's the word I want? I would wager. I would proffer. Yes. Um, the dramatic price jump, or price cut announced by um, Red this week or last week. Um, basically cutting all of their prices in half. Um, the the old, the original red, the red 1M or whatever it is, is effectively discontinued. It sounds like they're just sort of selling through their stock and their rental returns and whatnot, but that price has dropped to like $4,500 for the, the raw brain. Um, and then huh? the other prices have basically been cut more or less in half as well. Um, so... You know, they're obviously framing it as a, well, we've reached scale and we can afford to do this. But I think that they're also seeing that they've sort of made their mark in part competing on price or dramatically undercutting everyone. And, and you know, Canon and Sony and others are really pushing this market down. So, Yeah. It's good. I mean, there's... What, what sort of glass is everyone using now? Um... Are these all PL mount, or I'm assuming you just buy the little block that sits in the front? Yeah, I actually don't know what the mount on these Sony's is. Um, I mean, obviously, all the pictures they're sharing are with Sony's. Right. Like F3 line of glass, those nice. Yeah, yeah. So it's FZ mount and a PL mount adapter comes standard, and they also announced a series of uh, primes to go with it. Nice. Um, three lens and six lens kits. Cool. Um, and then Canon's going to have their own glass. Plus there's a PL mount version of the, the C 500. Um, and obviously red's got their own glass plus adapters for all the various 35 and other types of glass. So, um, you know, anything from low end glass on up through, you know, $200,000 lenses, I suppose. Yeah. Um, you know, it would be interesting to, you know, examine at some point what the way these cameras actually get used and what glass is actually going on them in the field. Um, because as we've, you know, I think when we linked to that Panavision Canon talk a few, you know, maybe a year ago, um, that talked about MTF and whatnot, it's, it's entirely possible to have a lens that optically can't pass anywhere near the resolution that your camera's capable of capturing. And, right. you know, you do have to wonder once you start to get into the 4K space how often that happens, um, that people sort of slap their cool DSLR lens that they got used on eBay onto their 4K camera. Um, yeah, I don't know. Just, you know, I mean, there are times when that makes sense. but Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But, you know, the, it's one of these cases that we deal with all the time in video where you have to be, you know, you're making cost trade-offs all the time and it's nice to be making those trade-offs uh with the full knowledge that you're making that trade-off and i I wonder how often sometimes people look at glass and we think of glass as something that's sort of low tech um yeah although if you if you look in a lens manufacturing obviously you'd find that it's far from low tech but you know you look at a piece of glass and you think well one piece of glass passes light so does another piece of glass you don't really think of it as something that reduces resolution Um, and so you wonder, you know, how often people... And I think a lot choice. of people buy glass with the idea that it's a long-term investment. Right. And so they're less likely to see that as something you, you know, it's like a tripod. You buy it and you, you don't, you know, revisit all those choices every time you get a new camera. Right. Exactly. Um, 
and you think about you know aperture and getting more light in, but really do you think about some of the other qualities of that glass? Um, yeah, it'll be interesting. I mean, it seems like soon it's going to be to the point where it will make sense, like to own your camera head and rent all your glass. Yeah. Like, I think we're already past that point. I think we've been past that point for a while now, but I think so. I mean, and, and it's, I, I, you know, honestly, I'm, I'm far enough removed from the uh, day-to-day production side of things. I don't have a sense of like what the rental houses here in the twin cities are, which is not a huge production market are doing as far as glass rental. Obviously, you know, if you're in LA or New York, you have a lot of options to rent you know, really nice primes from, from Ari or from, you know, some of the other big manufacturers, but, uh, I'm not sure what it's looking like here and, and, you know, how people are handling that. Um, you know, obviously traditionally you rented everything and, um, that doesn't make sense with a 4k camera or I mean, a $4,000 camera, I should say, or a $10,000 camera. If you're doing a, any, any sort of length shoot nowadays. Uh, well, I mean, there's two issues. One, it used to be that things were a little more niche. You rented a camera that had the set of, like, sacrifices that didn't play into the project you were working on. But now most of these cameras are just so good that, that you, you know, you don't really hit any issues with any of them. Yeah. And so one camera can cover a lot more of what you'd be shooting. And two, they're just so complex that, you know, especially workflow and everything else, that, like, there's something to be said for investing in a solution to the point where you can actually, like, get good at it, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Renting the the, the new hotness every shoot is going to cost you a lot of time just in getting up to speed on each new thing. Yeah. It is really, you know, fascinating to have enough perspective on the industry at this point, which I think we both do to watch these, the ebb and flow of these workflow issues um, that, you know, we sort of as an industry, will get into a period of a few months to a few years where workflow becomes pretty regimented. And then we sort of diverge again as something new comes online. And we're definitely in that, in that stage right now with all these different raw workflows, um, where, you know, it's very specialized per camera and there's very little overlap between your, um, you know, RA raw, your black magic raw, your red, your Sony, your Canon, they all have entirely different pipelines, usually with entirely different applications and, you know, pros and cons and capabilities. It's, I mean, you know, yeah. it's hard for even people like us who are plugged in to some extent to keep track of, you know, where all these different manufacturers are at. And it, it would, you know, if you're someone who's focused on your product, your, your shoot, um, making some of these decisions gets pretty complicated these days. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't see the position of DIT going away anytime soon no not at all do you think that there is a path by which we could sort of loop around to a standard raw format i mean you know the dslr raw hasn't gotten there but yeah i I don't i I mean mean, i I don't think that's gonna happen like a like a bayard raw well like we've got yeah dng from adobe that's sort of an attempt to do that but isn't really suited for 
Uh, yeah, I mean the problem is like you could do it. There's no there's no reason why it couldn't be done. The problem is that I mean that's really the last place any of these manufacturers have to compete on is CCD, you know, like sensor design. Yeah. And you know, the you know, the new the Cinealtas, their big thing is that they've got, you know, the double luminance sampling and all the other things and so that means that they've got an entirely different Bayer pattern sure i mean it wouldn't be difficult to design a format that sort of lets you you know set up a transform you know like define a transform matrix or you know a kernel of some kind that computed weighted values for everything um but I just don't know. You know, it seems like right now, if you're a company like Red, you know, they've obviously put a lot of effort into their own software. Same is true with Blackmagic. I mean, Sony's sort of always stunk at that. Um, but I don't see why. I mean, it behooves Adobe to try to get something in place but i don't think they have they're on the wrong end of this mm-hmm. you know they're just begging people to implement something for them i don't think it's a technical problem i think it's just a there's no a business problem a market problem yeah yeah the people who would need to adopt it don't have the same incentives as the people who want everyone to adopt it sure interesting well you sort of alluded to another story we've got linked here which is that sony um in conjunction with some of these other announcements, uh, started talking about the roadmap for their high-end camera, the F65, which is their 4K, really, you know, film production or high-end, um, you know, TV production camera um, that they're going to be releasing a, a new firmware update and some added sort of developer information and whatnot into 2013 that will, among other things, let you use the full resolution of the sensor if you choose instead of using the sensor the sensor over samples as mike was alluding to so it's got uh vertically it's got sort of those dual photo sites um for every vertical pixel so one with some nd applied effectively to capture a wider dynamic range um and also horizontally because it's actually got what dedicated rg and b pixels um with 2g for every R and B, I forget what the sensor layout is. Um, but basically, you're going to have the option of treating the F65 as an 8K by 4K camera um, or various combinations therein. And they're pairing it up with some new glass from Zeiss, um, some anamorphic glass to be able to do sort of 8K anamorphic acquisition. Nice. Um, so optimized for resolution and let your glass do the the widescreen as well um so you know another just interesting example of treating these cameras more and more as just dumb sort of sensor holders um and capturing that raw data and then having a lot of options to deal with that after the fact is pretty cool yeah i wonder yeah it would be cool to see some sort of raw interchange thing the thing is, I mean, it doesn't re I don't know if it matters to most people just because you want to get out of raw so quickly. Right, right. You know, the point where these where like standardizing something would be good is if you actually wanted to base a workflow around it. Well, and needed like tooling or 
change. Right. That's what I was getting at is if you're a production house, it'd be nice to sort of be able to just dump all your raw files into the same process and get out a standardized sort of, you know, even if it was, you know, even if it, you had a tool that took everyone's raw format and just baked it into DNG or right. did something so that then from that point forward, you had the same workflow, whether it originated on your, your cinema camera or your Alexa or whatever. Yeah. I mean, ideally we should, you know, well, what, I think the next big thing is going to be a camera that shoots to float um, linear. Yeah. That would be an interesting camera. That would be. What do you think about the how realistic that is? I mean, there's no reason it can't be done. Um, I'm not sure you get anything. I mean, the the thing is that, you know, there's no such I don't think there's such a thing as a analog to digital ADAC that would be float. So you're gonna end up with a preset quantization anyways, but you know, you can start pulling out more information when you go through things like debayering, because there you're mixing a non you know a not small number of integers together. Right. You actually end up with drastically more range than you would have. I don't know. I mean, it would be interesting to see more stuff being done in linear light because it's there's some neat things that come from that. Indeed. Um. Final Cut X update. I don't know that there's too much to say here. Um, Final Cut X got a pretty big update to 10.06, 10.006, 10, yeah. 10, 10.00600. I think one of those O's yeah. is part of the 10. Anyways, uh, multi-channel audio, um, some changes to importing. They've added dual viewers back into the app, or, or they brought dual viewers to the app, which uh, people will be happy about, although I imagine the Final Cut team tried to ignore that request for as long as possible. Well, and they don't even, the thing is they put it in, in such a way that they don't really, I mean, yeah, they don't even call it like three way editing, three point editing. It's called like an event viewer. (laughs) So it's just, it's, it's meant to be a viewer for your browser. Right. So I'm not sure. I don't know. I think they've done, They've done most of what people wanted, but I don't know, just naming it the event viewer in my mind changes the whole idea behind it. Yeah. The other thing they added was um, raw support or native support for um, R3D files from the red um, and support for the red rocket card that you can use in your Mac Pro. Um, or your Thunderbolt case, yeah. I suppose. But uh, that, that and some of these other things, it seems like there was definitely buzz in the Twitterverse and on um, some of the, the media sites of people taking a second look at Final Cut, either as the tool they use to at least rough, uh, rough cut red projects, um, because they've really taken a big step forward in red support, um, or just in general, you know, we're a year and a half on-ish, maybe just over, yeah, right about a year and a half on from the launch of Final Cut X. And a lot of the people, it seemed, a lot of the people who uh, walked away right away are 
starting to maybe take another take another look at this tool. Um, what do you think the you know the place for Final Cut X in the industry is right now, and do you think that's going to change over the next year? I mean, it's always just been an issue of optics. It's never not been a capable product. So I don't know. I mean, I think eventually, I think a lot of people decided they were going to wait and are just going to wait themselves into Final Cut X. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't really know. I mean... Obviously, Adobe's picked up a lot of people, but I think at this point, like most, I think the death of Final Cut Studio, the biggest thing it did was just sort of fragmented the industry. Like, you're just not going to ever have a machine with only one editing package on it anymore. Yeah. And so, at that point, I mean, as as a vendor, you don't really care if people use your software, as long as they're it's one of the things in the dock. Like if right. somebody just always has Final Cut, you know, purchased and up to date on their machine for when, you know, they use it once a year, that's fine. You know, that's the same to you as someone using it every day. Yeah. Well, and, and that's the interesting, you know, uh, conundrum or whatever with Final Cut X is that uh, for all of the gnashing of teeth, I I firmly believe the reports that it's far and away outsold all previous Everything copies ever. of Final Cut um, by by a pretty wide margin between the price cut and the app store availability and the um, accessibility of the application in terms of new users. I I absolutely believe that, and so you know from Apple's perspective, it's it's got to be a slightly tough line to walk because you've got this tool that. Um, looked at in a, in a void looks incredibly successful, but you've got all of these vocal people saying it's a complete flop. And so, um, obviously they're, they're walking that line and I'm, I, you know, I guess my biggest takeaway from this update is I'm just really glad they're still updating it and still really pushing the app forward. And there's still obviously an active team behind it because with Apple, you know, in, you, you kind of have to assume that products are dead between updates because you never get any sort of official, you almost never get any official announcement that a product's dead. Um, and so right. it can, and you don't get any leaks about what's happening to it either. Right. And so there can be a long lag between, um, a product being killed inside Apple and the team leaving and anyone actually sort of finding out or having a hint that that's happened. Um, and so it's just really, you know, heartening to see these updates. Um, and to see that Apple still seems pretty committed to it, right? I mean, because they could have they could have taken all the the whining to heart and said this isn't worth it. Um, you know, that certainly would have been the easy solution for them. Yeah. You know, we made this thing. You guys aren't happy. Fuck off. We're done. Like it's not like it caught. It wouldn't cost them any money to just can it. It wouldn't cost them any pride, really. Right. <laughs> So it's good that they, you know, someone in there actually considers this worth, you know, putting up a fight over. Yeah, absolutely. So that um, maybe takes us into our our next big topic. Who do you think it is who's putting up a fight for this? Um, Apple had a major, probably the biggest in my memory at least, shakeup of senior management um, last week, uh, firing Scott Forstall and 
John Browett, the director of retail, and reshuffling the whole organization of the company, basically. Yeah, all the higher ups. Got, yeah, yeah. They just sort of people got new titles, new responsibilities, stuff. Um, Scott is not being replaced, but instead his duties are being split up among the other guys, and um, it you know at least at, at the high level it looks like a very different company now. Right. So Scott used to be in charge of everything iOS, pretty much. Yeah, software and you know. Not exactly the hardware side, but he was kind of the go-to guy for iOS. Right. Obviously, they were driving a lot of the hardware decisions. Yeah. And so, I mean, I guess, I don't know how I feel about this. I mean, everyone says it's great that Ives is in charge of software design now, which I guess we'll see. I don't really know. Um, There's not a lot of software designed by Braun, so we don't really have an idea where he's going to go with that. Um, I mean, I would say my my response on that is I don't... I, I, I'm in the same boat, obviously. I don't know what Johnny will design, but using iOS 6 really feels like there was no one at the making ultimate decisions about consistency, and I, I feel like he will bring that, if nothing else. Yeah, I mean, it should be coherent, whatever it is. Yeah, and that'll be nice. Um, obviously, you know, having used some Windows 8 and some of the other newer OSs on the market, it would be nice to see iOS moving forward design-wise a bit, but I am also not a fan of design for the sake of design, and so I don't I don't expect that he'll come in and sort of reboot everything all at once, um, and I certainly don't think that would be a good idea. Yeah, I mean, so, but the... The thing that I find most interesting about this is, okay, so it used to be that there was a guy who did iOS and then a guy who did hardware design and a guy who did hardware and a guy who did OS X, right? Yeah. Does getting rid of the iOS guy, that doesn't seem, I mean, I think it's unreasonable to think that that means iOS gets downplayed now. Right. So does this mean Mac gets downplayed now? I don't think so because, yeah, I mean, the, the teams aren't shrinking. Um, I think it means that, you know. No, I mean, the I, teams I, aren't shrinking, but, I mean, the problem with Apple has always been that nothing ships until it's been green-lighted by, like, everything is micromanaged. Well, but I think you have to back up and look at what led to this this situation happening, which is that we've been hearing for years that Scott Forstall could be difficult to work with. Um, you know, obviously had a lot of successes to his name, but did not do a lot to engender love of other people within the company and rubbed a lot of executives, the, a lot of people he had to work with the wrong way. Um, and, you know, in a lot of ways modeled himself after Steve Jobs without some of the sort of political capital within the company to get away with that. Um, I, you know, we could get into the whole Bob Mansfield quitting thing, but it seems like pretty clear that that was a response to his issues with Scott Forstall. Um, and, and we've also heard that there were issues to the degree that Johnny Ive wouldn't sit in a meeting with Scott Forstall. Um, you know, it's so you can say we haven't had a situation where there's been one person in charge, but, you know, we also haven't had a, a situation where these teams were even talking, which certainly right. can't have been positive either. That's true. Um, 
I don't know. I mean, you know, back when Steve was around, he was the arbiter of everything going through the company to, you know, a greater or lesser extent. Um, and that seemed to work okay for them. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it definitely slowed things down, I think. But I don't, you know, I don't necessarily, you know, Apple's never been a company that, that whose success is based on being first to ship something. That's true. Um, yeah. I mean, it'll be interesting. They, I guess I, yeah, I, I think, and, and I'm, you know, as big an Apple apologist as anyone, but there've definitely been a number of things over the last 18 months that have felt sloppy coming out of Apple. And I really hope that this is a turning point where some of that will start to get cleaned up. Yeah. I mean, how much of this do you think is just sort of Tim Cook's realization that he doesn't want to deal with the products? It's hard to say. I mean, I mean, a lot of this feels like he doesn't want to have to be in the room yeah. so that people can have these meetings, which sounds like was what, you know, like he had to sort of be the go-between to Raleigh's departments. I, I, and I, w- I, w- I guess I would be inclined at this point without knowing more to give Cook the benefit of the doubt and say that it's his recognition that that's not his strength and that he, yeah, no, he doesn't want to be in those meetings be because he yeah. doesn't have a lot to bring to those meetings. Not that he's, I, I don't know. I, I, I think he's capable of putting people in line. Obviously he was capable of firing someone who, you know, a lot of people thought was going to be the next CEO. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, it'll be, I don't know. We'll see what happens. I, I mean, mean, we're not going to see what happens for two years, but right. You know, the, the, the big change, I guess, is we're going from an executive team that consisted of a guy no one liked and a guy no one respected to a team that's been working together for years and years and years and who, according to all external reports, all sort of appreciate each other. Uh, and that's got to be better for a company. Yeah, I'll agree with that. Um, and it'll be very interesting to see who they find to head retail, um, if they indeed even do find someone to head retail or if that just stays sort of permanently under team Tim Cook's. Yeah, I mean, that seems like the kind of thing he could handle. I think so. I, um, you know, although I don't think it should probably start innovating again on the store side. Yeah. I don't think it would be completely unreasonable to think that we could see Ron Johnson back at Apple someday. Um, yeah. JC Penny isn't working out too well, is it? No. And, and, you know, honestly, I, I don't fault him per se, but it does seem like the board, uh, one didn't really have the stomach for the plan that they approved and also exactly. aren't going to give him much more time. So, um, well, they, they liked the plan. They just wanted it to pay off immediately. Right. Right. Um, so I don't know whether Ron would have any interest in coming back to Apple, um, I think Apple would welcome him back since it seems like they parted on good terms, but, uh, yeah, I don't know how long his tenure at JC Penney has left. I don't understand why it's so hard to find people. I agree. I mean, you would think that, you know, especially in this retail space, there are other successful retailers. Obviously Apple is one of the most successful, but I didn't hear, I, well, I guess it would be really interesting to know more about what went into hiring this guy because everyone sort of said he was an odd choice. Yeah, I mean, so I don't understand why they need a retail person. Like, just hire someone to manage it. Like, it's not it's not a retail organization. Yeah. I don't. They don't need to make money. 
I don't understand. They don't need the Zelda. Like what? Why isn't it just under Phil Schiller? Like marketing? Yeah. Well, I mean, he's yeah. vice president I mean, of worldwide it's sales. Like, like it's. They should hire like yeah. They should hire a marketing person to run the stores because that's all it is. Yeah. Or hire the guy they brought in to do the like Apple University. Yeah. Just consider it educational. People come into our stores to learn about our products. That's it. We don't sell them there. We just teach people about them. And if they give us their credit card, then oh well. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, yeah. I mean, that's why they don't need, they shouldn't be looking at people who run stores for a living. Because Apple is the one company on the face of the earth that doesn't need to run a store. Well, there'll certainly be a lot of sort of tea leaf reading in whoever they pick um, and, and how quickly they do pick someone. But uh, I, I would guess that they're not going to move quickly to pick someone if they do indeed bring someone in at all. Yeah. Uh, certainly not before the holidays, but uh, we'll see. And now, I mean, you know, we're also in a weird period for Apple where they've sort of they've changed everything over the last couple months uh, from management to most of their product lines. Um, there's really nothing in their rumor mill right now about what the next six months are going to bring. They're done. It, it's, it is. I mean, it's interesting. Yeah, there's no sort of churn about iPads, iPhones, MacBooks, iMacs, anything. Well, it's the problem is that none of those things. So the problem is we know where they're going. Like they, I don't think they have any new products well, in the foreseeable future. I, I mean, TV is still on the horizon, I think. I don't know. I mean, the, the, the stat that I hear that makes me think TV is never going to be a big deal for them is that total U.S. sales of TVs is like $30 billion a year. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like, that's just not... I mean, they could do it, but it's not worth enough money. Yeah. I mean, like, I think... If they're going to ship a new product, it's got to be something they can make $100 billion a year on. Right. I would assume that anything they do in TV is going to be something that can be either, you know, an add-on. I mean, what they're going to innovate on is the content delivery side. And if they ship a piece of hardware optimized for that content delivery, that's great. And people will buy that. But that won't be, you know, the the physical product won't be the interesting part there. Yeah. Yeah. but yeah, do you was, think they? I mean, I guess they've got Q. Apparently, was fairly well regarded in his dealings with the music industry. Yeah, but do you think they've lost some of their ability to have those meetings now that they don't have that final meeting with Steve? Yeah, absolutely, I do. Where everyone can agree that nothing's going to get signed today, and they walk into the meeting, and Steve says, "Come on, sign it." Yeah, come on, let's yeah. do this. Quit fucking around. And I think they also lose something from not having their CEO also be, you know, CEO of Pixar or on the board of Disney. I think they got, you know, especially as they moved into TV and movies, when none of the content vendors would license their stuff to iTunes at a minimum. They at least had Disney. Yeah, they had Disney and ABC and Pixar. And that's, you know, not great, but it's no small thing. And it sort of kickstarts or, or, you know, bootstraps um, a store. And so, obviously, there are still connections between the companies, but yeah, that's uh, yeah. a loss. So it'll be interesting. I it, I just I can't remember a time in recent memory when uh, the rumor mill's been so dry in terms of even sort of thinking about what might be next. Um, you know, start there's starting to be some talk about 
macOS 10.9. Um, but you know, there's yeah, not too much out there, so it's exciting. But yeah, everything right now is just going to be incremental improvements for a while. Yeah, I did put a Retina and everything, which will be put nice. an A6 and everything. Yep, Maybe. make everything thinner and lighter. Yeah, absolutely. I did use an iPad Mini today, and I liked it a lot. So you need one. I don't need one. You do though. I I am getting slightly closer to thinking about a Kindle Paperwhite though. I talked to a big time Kindle user today who basically said it's immensely better than anything before for reading. So yeah, it's like a book that has a little bit of a shadow on the bottom. Yeah, well, I think that would drive me batty. Yeah, I, I need to see one in person, but um, I mean, I love my Kindle so much. I'd be the person with a clip-on light on their Paperwhite. Yeah. Yeah, I'll have to, I don't know. I don't know. Are they sold in any retail stores anymore? Have they burned all those bridges? Can't you just order one Prime and send it back? I guess. Yeah, they're seventy bucks or whatever. Um, they're seventy bucks now. Yeah, they're really cheap. I thought they were like one hundred and fifty. Are they that much? I th- uh, I don't know. I'll You're thinking look. the Kindle Free uh, or whatever it's called. Okay. okay. The Kindle Bookmark. <laughs> Yeah, I'll have to take a look. But, um, you know, yeah, iPad mini, big deal. It's smaller. They're going to hopefully sell a lot of them. Um, yeah, what else we got here? Um, we just want to make these chatters. Have you done with it? Uh, I mean, we, we're only 48 minutes in or something. Uh, so. Okay. Uh, so Connect Fusion. These are all kind of chatters. Like they're not yeah, we'll just chat through a couple things here. But um, I found this guy who's on Creative Planet, guy who's got, he's made a little VJ setup for the Blackmagic ATEM switcher. So it uses their, um, I think, Ethernet control protocol. Yeah. And he's built a little SDK. That runs on Arduino. And it just seems like there's lots of neat things you could do when you've got an Arduino library for controlling a relatively cheap video switcher. Indeed. Yeah, I'm just looking at this now for the first time. So he's using it for what kind of control is he doing then with the Arduino? Oh, VJ. You know, he's a VJ. So. But he just made basically like a DJ style switch pad. So oh, sure. it's got source select on both sides and a fader. Sure. So it's like for cross mixing between two channels. That's cool. But it's neat. I mean, it's like, it's like a really dead simple little physical UI for a, you know, black magic switcher in a box. Yeah, that, that actually, this is actually a pretty interesting um, use of an atom as well, um, which I, th- I think is a underappreciated piece of hardware. An atom? The ATEM, I mean. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, a ridiculously inexpensive and relatively powerful box. Um, yeah, I mean, when you get into stuff like this, like I just imagine, I don't think that any of this is public yet. I don't think. Black, Black Magic has been talking for a long time about an SDK. I don't think they've actually released one. Mm-hmm. 
So this guy, I think, probably just packet sniffed or something. Yeah. But you could just easily imagine if Blackmagic wanted to open this space up, like publish their SDK. They may have done it already. I don't know. I don't really follow that part of their SDK forums. Um, but allow third parties to start designing these sort of one-off controllers. And all of a sudden, you know, it makes a lot of sense to put one of these in every conference room or every, you know, have a custom controller built into the podium in every classroom. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that starts to look like... Because you can do, like, picture-in-picture, and you can do... Right, it's... You know, just simple fades and stuff that just happen on button presses or, you know, run them into something kind of like a... What's... Crestron? Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say is that an Atom is a far less expensive way of doing what Extron or Crestron or... or uh, um, Disestron. Who's the other guy? Not Tanberg, but anyways, um, AMX. Uh, what they charge you a lot of money for a much dumber box that just does serial control. Right. Um, and, and this gives you a lot more capabilities. And, you know, obviously there are a lot of places in which you know, for that type of installed solution where cost is not the driving factor, but, um, you know, it could be an interesting opportunity for integrators to have a really polished solution that people are actually interested in bringing in. Right. And the idea of like an ethernet SDK that you can, you know, that comes with, I mean, black magic's nice. They always include sample projects. They always include an actual Xcode project that builds the first time you try. Like, it would be, you know, pretty conceivable to start seeing, like, here's the thing we're doing, and it has an iPhone app. Stuff like that gets really interesting, I think. I don't know. Yeah. Speaking of uh, interesting SDKs, um, Microsoft, as part of the Connect for Windows uh, project, released or is releasing a product called Connect Fusion which is a Windows tool to use the, the Microsoft Connect to build 3D models or 3D environments. Um, and so it's not necessarily doing anything that the open source community and other people haven't done with Connect hacking already, but it looks like a really polished solution that works on an oversampling model to average lots and lots of inputs from the Connect to create much more detailed models than you get with the sort of real-time model that other people have been doing. Um, and you can actually, you know, move the sensor around by holding it and moving it around and capture additional data that way and have it sort of paint in additional data. Yeah. And have it, uh, rectify all of that. Um, so it's interesting and it's just cool to see Microsoft's continuing to move this, uh, connect for windows and, and the sort of connect for hackers project forward. Yeah, they, this has been one of their bigger hardware wins ever well and it's this cool example of you know mike we uh, geeks are sort of well tuned into the fact that microsoft has an amazing research division and that does really cool work um connect sort of leaked out of research in the guise of a gaming platform uh but but this was actually an acquisition for them was it yeah they didn't do this r&d themselves oh i did not know that yeah they bought a small company at like they actually showed it. The company that they bought was actually at the point of showing it at some game conference. Huh. When Microsoft bought them. 
Interesting. Okay. And then they sort of went black for a year or two and then came out with the Kinect. Interesting. I'm almost sure I'm not lying about any of that. <laughs> no, that sounds vaguely familiar now that you mention it. But, you know, the point being that this, this came out as a gaming product, but very quickly uh, was adopted by researchers and hackers and artists and everyone as this really inexpensive hardware platform for doing a type of data acquisition that wasn't realistically feasible for people on a budget previously, just wasn't feasible. Um, and Microsoft, to their great credit, uh, responded not by freaking out, but by releasing a separate packaged version of the product just for hackers and releasing an official SDK for Windows and supporting them and showing off the cool stuff they're doing and you know, doing really all kinds of cool stuff to support this community. Yeah. Um, so very exciting. And, and I would love to see more products like this, you know, it, it, it's, it's, um, it's really cool when you can use volume, the volumes of a gaming platform to sort of get the price down on something like this and have it have these great research implications as well. Um, and it'd be cool if other people in the space sort of recognized that, you know, um, researchers at universities using your product for cool projects is not a threat. And, um, so doing things like releasing SDKs actually benefits everyone. Yeah. The name of the company was prime sense. Okay. looks like they're actually still around. They just licensed it. Interesting. To Microsoft. Well, it'd be, yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's a, Obviously, one of the issues that these console vendors and people in the gaming space run into is that, you know, their number one concern because they make money selling games, not selling hardware is, well, one, that if you just buy their hardware and never buy a game, they lose money on you. Um, Two, if you have too much access to the hardware, you can potentially use that to do piracy, um, as Sony found from their sort of Linux port of, um, or their, their PlayStation 3 Linux port that, that led to some security issues. Um, but when I look at something like the Nintendo Wii U, which is their sort of crazy new game console, hardware, tablet-y, wireless thing, I don't, I, I don't know how you explain what the Wii U is, but um, it seems like the kind of hardware that could be reappropriated in a lot of interesting ways. And it would be nice if people could do that without having to first spend the, you know, f- spend the first 18 months reverse engineering firmwares and, and creating like buffer overflow exploits for the Japanese release of this particular game or whatever, um, right. in order to get access to the hardware. Yeah. So, all right. That's all I got to say about that. What's your chatter? Dragon baby. Um, it's a video. Check it out. It's very well done. Um, the guy's done a bunch of these VFX heavy shorts, Patrick Boyvin, but this one's pretty good. Yes. Um, and it's made itself, it came out a couple of days ago and it's already made itself a Vimeo staff pick and stuff. So it's not gonna, you've probably seen it already, but I was was really impressed. Did, Did he, is there any sort of making of behind this at this point? What's that? Um, has he done a making of or anything explaining how he's doing the character animation? Um, not on this one. He usually does them. So I think we'll see it at some point. Yeah, I wasn't able to 
uh, I guess the images, I wasn't able to load the images the other day, but it looks like there's nothing really interesting there anyways. One day ago it says, thanks, I'll upload a making of in a few days. Great. So. Okay. Because, yeah, this is very, as you watch it, you'll be impressed, I think, that um, there's, there's some there's some clever VFX going on there. Yeah. Um, and not just clever for a Vimeo video, but just clever in general. Yeah. Um, my chatter to take us back to the Apple topic, uh, it was announced today that Eddie Q, who is now in charge of Siri and maps is, uh, joining the board for Ferrari. Um, oh. he's been, I've seen a number of things over the years referencing him as a car collector or a car enthusiast. Uh, but apparently he is now, he owns at least one Ferrari and is being, uh, asked, has been asked to join the board. Uh, which is interesting, um, you know, at this high end with executives, it does seem like having executives on boards of other companies does promote cl- cross collaboration between companies. Um, you know, uh, obviously there's a, there's a high end market at stake here with Ferrari, but Ferrari being owned by, uh, Fiat and Fiat being part, you know, owning Chrysler and whatnot, like there, there is a, a wider swath of the automotive industry, um, involved here. Um, and Ferrari is obviously involved in some of the leading research on composite materials, interesting uses of aluminum, um, you know, a lot of interesting materials research and, and other things. So, um, you know, we'll see if this promotes any information sharing or closer collaboration between the companies, but, uh, I thought it was cool. Is Ferrari the company that does all those horrible, like paid designs for other people? Or is that Porsche? Um, you mean like the one-off? Like, you know, they like take your product and turn it red, slap their logo on it, and you just charge 400 bucks more for it? Um, they've done some of that in the past. They all have. So yeah, I think Digital you can, cameras. You can get a the Ferrari SureShot 100. Yeah, I mean, Ferrari at least is rumored to make more money from merchandising than from their cars, um, <laughs> which, you know. They, obviously, they don't sell a lot of cars, so that's not that surprising. They have Ferrari stores all around the world that sell Ferrari-branded merchandise. There's one across the street from the Apple store. Yes. Um, and obviously, Ferrari is heavily involved in racing and a number of other spaces as well. Um, but, you know, going way back to the 40s and the founding of Ferrari, um, the whole point of the company was basically to make enough money to be able to go have fun at the racetrack. And I think they continue that to this day. And so, um, they want to be self-sufficient. And if that means they have to sell branded sort of crap in order to fund going to play in formula one, um, the company want, will do that. Like that's just the sort of ethos of the company, which I don't think you can argue with too much if they've made it clear that, you know, they exist to do that. Hmm. So, I mean, they, you know, yeah. So anyways, we will see. Um, hopefully Eddie sticks around long enough to, you know, buy some more Ferraris and we'll have Ferrari branded MacBooks and yeah, I'll have stripes on them and carbon, yeah. fake, fake carbon fiber V12 engines. So that's, uh, that's all the news. Now we'll head into another exciting period of the holidays where nothing much will happen in the industry i guess mm-hmm. uh interbee's coming up next week though i don't know what's that interbee's next week so what's next week interbee the tokyo oh interbee yeah 
Um, I don't know if anyone's really talking about showing much off there, but okay, Sony will have hands on with all their cameras, but that's about and yeah. Canon. Yeah. But that's probably it. Yeah. Sort of a weird time for a show. So Yeah. Um I think that's it. Okay. Until till next year. Well we'll we'll keep you in the loop. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Later.